everybody, and welcome back for another episode of Miss Nigan Isquack. My name is Kayla, and I am one of your lovely book women. And I am here with I'm Tanya, and we have also Sheila. And today, our special guest is Tisha. Yay! Welcome, Tisha. Thanks for coming and visiting with us tonight. Happy to be here. Yeah. So Keisha, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Where are you from? Who are you? So I am Keisha Supernant. I am an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Alberta. I'm also director of the Institute for Prairie and Indigenous Archaeology. I'm Métis, and most of my family lines that are Métis on my dad's side come from Alberta primarily Northern Alberta. So I've got lots of connections to different families here. Uh, everything from, you know, Gautiers and Gladues and Knots and Supernos, um, all the way back to the Greys and, and folks who came out from Mohawk territory uh, out to Jasper House in the, in the late seven, uh, 1700s, and early 1800s. I did find a Manitoba line recently. The Knots actually are from Manitoba. So back to that part of the world. Uh, and then I'm a settler, British settler on my mom's side. And, and that my family on that side came over about 100 years ago and settled in Saskatchewan. And uh, I've been at the University of Alberta for about 10 years now. And I'm an archaeologist by training. And I work primarily with First Nations and Métis communities to do community-engaged and community-driven archaeological projects. That's great. It sounds like you've been doing some uh, genealogy work lately. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Gotta learn all the family names so I can find my cousins. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Every time I introduce myself, I'm finding like another cousin or just somebody that might be related to me somehow. So Total aside, but I just found out that one of my graduate students who's Métis is my cousin. I mean, we're distant cousins, but we're cousins. And, and I'm just joking with my other Métis colleagues. I'm like, it's just a matter of time. We'll find the connection. Someone's married someone in our family trees because I just found out that I'm connected to like the Dion Blandion uh, folks and the Desjardins folks. And it's like, well, that's a whole nother realm of Métis folks to be engaged, to be connected to. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a big, that's a big family. That's a very like prominent Métis family. There's a lot of them out there. So Mm -hmm. just make sure you ask names before you start making out in the bush (laughs) (laughs) pro matey tip are you my cousin is the first question you ask before you start pulling around right you just gotta whip out the genealogy to be like all right let's go down this line and see where it either lines up or it doesn't line up yeah (laughs) and that's why genealogy is so important let's be real (laughs) yeah you know if it's far enough back then (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of a gray area because <laughs> I have cousins that they're definitely cousins in my family tree who married each other at some point. So, <laughs> oh yeah, my uh, my second great grandparents, so like just my grandparents, they are all pretty much related. Like it's a thing; yeah. it lines up on the tree, and we're all like, "Well, that's a thing." Like everyone's yeah. just sitting around. We're like, "Yep, that is a thing." <laughs> yeah I think my grandparents were like second or third cousins something like that it's just it's just like royalty we got to keep it in the family right exactly we can't be spreading this around I've never heard of that before I'm gonna use that Keisha thank you you for that (laughs) 
<laughs> they talk about Métis royalty. Mm-hmm. Tanya, you've never heard my explanation of what the white is in the Métis sash. What I learned what the white was from an elder. It's the purity oh, yeah, of bloodlines. That's literally what the elder told me. He's like, we, it's the purity of the Métis bloodlines. That's what the white oh. is. And I was like, there you oh, go. That's heart. So like. <laughs> So not the blue blood, the white blood. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that took a turn. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) We talk about some stuff on this podcast. Incest, number one. (laughs) 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 On that note, Keisha, (laughs) let's ask you some questions about this. Um, As you know, our podcast is about Indigenous storytelling, writing, editing, and publishing Indigenous stories. We... We're all very keen to introduce and invite you onto this podcast to talk about the storytelling connection with archaeology and anthropology. Is there a connection? Oh, there's always a connection. And I really love that you invited me here because I think at the core of, increasingly at the core of what I do is is about telling our stories. Archaeology is a a way to understand the past and it's a way to understand the past through the material that's left behind of course and for a long time archaeologists have really focused on you know how do we how do we dig stuff up how do we uh, group it together how do we put it in a bunch of tables and analyze it statistically to make sense of the past but for me that was never what the draw was it was never about kind of the numbers and the stats and like you know how many people lived here 10,000 years ago. It was really about history. It was about understanding what happened in the past and particularly how people live their lives. So one of the the great gifts of archaeology is that a lot of the material that people leave behind is from their day-to-day life. So unlike history, which is written in particular ways for particular purposes, um, you know, whether it be demographic information, whether it be journals, whether it be books, they're written for particular, by particular people for particular people. Whereas archaeology can reflect the entirety of a, of a community through their kind of daily practice. And actually, we're, we're pretty good at understanding sort of those really quotidian day-to-day things like what did people eat? And what sort of structures did they live in? And what kind of activities did they, did they do? What kind of materials did they use in their daily lives? And so for me, telling those stories about the past using the material has become a really important way to understand the, you know, the histories of our communities, right? And, and how, uh, where they came from, what they did, and all that kind of thing. I love that. I was actually reading, I can't remember, it was uh, the name of your book chapter, Keisha, when you started talking about like the ghosts of the past and the, how we're haunted by um, all of our, I guess, all of our stories that are buried. Mm-hmm. I wonder what is your, and especially because you're interested in genealogy, what's your personal connection to these? I'm thinking about your introduction and how I was like, oh, I love this. <laughs> so for me, uh, I, I mean, I do a lot of different sorts of archaeology but the core of what I'm doing right now the thing that I'm really leading and I'm really really into really passionate about is telling Métis stories through archaeology and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you a bit of a story because <laughs> that's part of what, what we want to do here um, so I actually grew up in BC and I was born in Victoria and raised in Vancouver my dad's a 60s scoop survivor and so he was raised in foster care and that meant we were very disconnected from our what it meant to be Métis and, and our family and even our homeland, right? But I got really interested in archaeology as a teenager and I was really sort of fascinated 
as many a budding archaeologist is by the ancient civilizations of the past and like the mysteries and like all that kind of, you know, Indiana Jonesy stuff. But what was a really interesting part of my journey is that I went to UBC in Vancouver to study archaeology, and I ended up having the great privilege of working with a First Nation, the Scowlitz First Nation, um, and they are uh, along the Fraser, up the Fraser River from Vancouver. And uh, I did a, a field school where we had community members on the dig with us, and this was in 2000, so this was relatively early. That wasn't common at the time. And what that really did is it, it made me think a lot about how archaeology can matter for contemporary people and and the community members kind of took me under their wing and they taught me a lot about their connection to that place and to their past and like this was very they had a very different experience of that place than I did because I wasn't descended from the people who lived there so I I went about my PhD and then uh, was lucky enough to get a tenure track job at the University of Alberta and I knew we were from here, sort of, like my dad had come back and tried to find more supernos and kind of did the whole thing, but it didn't really go anywhere. So I knew vaguely that, oh, I knew we were Métis at this point and was trying to figure out what that meant, but I didn't know any of my living relatives. And uh, so I moved to Edmonton and I moved to my homeland. I have a number of ancestors who were recorded at Fort Edmonton or, or Fort de Prairie and like it lacks St. Anne, St. Albert. Like this is a place where my family is, is from in part. Uh, and what that did is it really opened up all sorts of opportunities for me to start to think about how could I connect what I do professionally with my reconnecting with my own identity as a Métis person. And, you know, archaeology actually became that path back to living relatives for me because I started exploring, you know, who's done what around Métis archaeology. The answer was, well, virtually nothing has been done, of course, because we're always sort of an afterthought, right? And then I was like, well, let's start something up and started working with folks from the Métis Nation of Alberta. And they invited me to come to one of their assemblies after I'd done a, a dig at an important wintering site here in Alberta. And it was there that I met my first living relative. And it just so happened it was my relative Cliff Superno, who actually just recently passed, which is really sad for our community. But he he's one of those people in, in, our, in our families who knows everything about the family, about the history, about the genealogy. We always have a few of those folks around. And he was that person. And he was the first one I met. And so he just then connected me to this whole web of relations. And that really helped me think about how I tell our story using the archaeology from our own perspective, right? So archaeologists, we have our methods, we have the ways in which we try to make sense of the past, but typically archaeology has been done by non-Indigenous people. And in North America, in Turtle Island, the vast majority of archaeology that's done is done on Indigenous past by non-Indigenous people. So the stories that are told are told through the lens of someone who's not Indigenous, and usually white settler. I was thinking a lot about how can I tell Métis stories through our own ways of kind of knowing and being and, and thinking about how we make sense of our, our relatives in the past. And it took me to my genealogy. It took me to the places where I have ancestral connections. And so when I'm on archaeological sites, I don't know for sure that my ancestors were at that particular place, but certainly in Alberta, they probably were. And if they weren't, they certainly knew a lot of people who were there because of the, the nature of our, our communities um, at the time. So it's this really wonderful feeling to be on an archaeological site where it's like, this could have been my great-great-grandfather's cabin. This could have been that. And if it's not exactly that, it's 
the type of life they were leading. It's the type of activities they were doing. And, and it's just something I didn't get to grow up learning. And so now I get to learn from being in those places, from learning the stories through the materials and the places that our ancestors lived. That is so fascinating to me. And so I'm a public librarian. I have left academia, but I'm like, just like listening to you speak, I'm like, oh my God, academia is so cool. (laughs) We can like do things with community in academics. Like, you know, there isn't really as much of like a split as there there is in my mind necessarily, Mm -hmm. you know, that's fascinating to me. That's so cool. Yeah, I think there are ways to to bring that split together but it's not always easy and I would say it's taken me years to get to a point where I feel like I can be an Indigenous archaeologist and not an Indigenous person and an archaeologist as those those two kind of things have to sit separately Uh, for a long time it was difficult because it's like archaeology sort of expects you to be in a, a particular way and do things in a particular way so story lots of archaeologists would reject the idea that we're storytellers right? We're scientists. And, you know, we're, we study the truth of the past using scientific methods. Now, I think scientific methods are really helpful, and they can help us make sense of a complex uh, material record that is left behind. But ultimately, I'm totally a storyteller, because what am I doing otherwise, right? I don't, I don't want to just look at the sort of the object as something. I want to what did that mean? Who was using it? What was their life like? And the richness of that. And that storytelling is actually one of the ways in which I think a lot about um, indigenizing archaeology, for lack of a better term, or integrating these different ways of understanding the world together. Uh, It really ties it together through, through story and through a full understanding of our history. So it's not just about those like places where I go and do excavation. It's about tying those into our homeland and into our families. So I, I really work hard to kind of bridge those things all together, or weave them all together in my work. Yeah, I think we kind of have the same issue in librarianship where you're expected to be librarian and Indigenous, but it isn't until recently that we kind of see where more Indigenous librarians are kind of intertwining it together because we can't separate it. And those are just parts of our lives. Our whole education, or I guess, not so bad as it used to be, but I think within like the field of librarianship, there are still sometimes individuals that go around saying, you know, that librarians should be neutral. We're a neutral party. We have one job. We're information specialists, but it really does not work like that. And there is the potential to kind of meld the two together and create like a really great discipline and be authentic to ourselves and who who we are as Indigenous librarians, which it does include storytelling too, as part of that. But also I would like to say, I was an anthropology major in university and I met Keisha when I was just a wee undergrad, graduate student. I remember. (laughs) Because I took a course with Keisha and man, I I would actually say, if you would have been there from my first year, I might've stayed in anthropology (laughs) because I just, I did not see myself reflected at all within like, and nothing on the faculty of, nothing on anthropology at the U of A. It's just, I did not see myself like reflected there. And even a lot of times when professors would just say something and I'm like, what, hold on, let's pump the brakes on that. Like, where are you getting your information? And I think it wasn't (laughs) until 
I really met you in your Northwest Coast anthropology class. And I was like, hey, like you can be indigenous and come from like a place of indigenous worldviews and be an anthropologist and archaeologist at the same time. But it was a little bit too late because I think I took that course in my fourth year and I was already <laughs> on my way out. So <laughs> I think that's a really important observation. And I think you know, as I mentioned before, certainly in the archaeological side, there's a over, like, we're, we're very white discipline. And that the subject, I used air quotes here, is often not white, right? And so all of anthropology, I mean, all disciplines are colonial, right? In any in, in university setting, other than perhaps Indigenous studies, so many of the disciplines in which we are trained are deeply entrenched in these colonial ways of knowing. Anthropology arguably is one of the most entrenched in that because it's founded on the idea of studying others, right? That's the sort of core of what anthropology is, studying other cultures. And your experience in anthropology is not unusual um, for many who would be put in the category of quote unquote other, right? So folks who are from Indigenous communities, folks who are from racialized communities, folks who are from other countries, folks who are from uh, different gender identities, you know, so there's all these, that, that diversity sort of anthropology studies them as opposed to integrates and works with. I think there's been good progress starting to be made. And certainly in archaeology, the disciplines had to face some things over the past 30 years that have really started to, to push it in new directions. So it's actually 30 years this year was the passing of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act in the United States, which required institutions that receive federal funding to inventory and return ancestors to descendant communities. And that was in 1990. And so since then, there's been sort of you know, that sparked a whole conversation, hugely controversial because, you know, archaeologists think that the past is theirs and, you know, we can't study it because they're going to take it back and put it back in the ground. And there's a lot of that rhetoric at the time. But over time, you're training new generations of archaeologists under that understanding that the ancestors don't belong in a museum. They belong with the descendants, right? They belong back where they were taken from, perhaps. So that uh, shifting in archaeology is meaning there's more more space for it but it's still the way we teach and the way we kind of communicate that still feels often very othering for indigenous students so i've had the great privilege to have a number of indigenous students in my classes i now have graduate students increasingly graduate students are coming to me from indigenous communities which i love because i want to create the space for them to continue the work of uh, bringing our ways of knowing and being into an understanding of the past and not feeling like they have to have that split like i did or like Imagine training the next generation of, of librarian, like you want them to have a different understanding than, than you might have received in your training. And that's a, a huge part of why I love to teach. And that's true also for non-Indigenous students, right? To have them think differently about what do we take for granted? Why did archaeologists think that the past was theirs to study? Where does that belief come from? Who gave them permission to be stewards of the past for the good of everyone? And it's all tied up with settler colonialism and white supremacy and all these issues that we can then talk about that uh, we can expose kind of the underlying concepts at play. Wow, you're bringing up so many fascinating topics that 
I'm trying to pinpoint in my own head on where I want to ask. I guess I, it, you're causing me to reflect on a lot of things here. I'm, I'm wondering, it's the self and academia. It always is trying to distance yourself from whatever it is that you're doing. And it almost seems like an indigenous way of knowing is integrating the self into whatever it is that you're doing in a more holistic way of thinking about things. And I mean, that's tied into representation, of course, like you were mentioning, Keisha, and it sounds like you're doing so much work in terms of that and intergenerational learning and my brain is about to explode here but <laughs> so I might it pick up really, on... it's wow yeah pick up you pick, pick up, up on a thread from what you, what you said <laughs> yeah. because I think there's lots of threads we could go but one thing that has become increasingly like as I learn as I continue to learn I feel like you know I've got a PhD and I've got tenure and I've got all these fancy titles but when it comes to being Métis and Indigenous ways of knowing and being I'm like a kindergartner like I'm still I've got so much to learn and I'm so privileged to have colleagues and elders and knowledge holders who who have been so gracious as to share that with me and help me on that journey but one of the things that really um, has come home to me is that I can't separate out my mind from the rest of me and because we're all in relation right so that the, the entire way we make sense like I make sense of what it means to be a self even is in relation, relation with living human relatives, relation with uh, relatives that are not human, that are, you know, lands and waters and animals and plants and, you know, sky and all these things. Uh, And so to like isolate any of those pieces to me works against what I understand to be a Métis way of being and and, and being in, in relation. And what has this really led me to in a couple of ways? I recently um, co-edited a book called Archaeologies of the Heart, and it's with three wonderful colleagues, uh, Jane Baxter, Natasha Lyons, and Sonia Adelaide. And Sonia uh, is Indigenous as well. And then my two other wonderful colleagues. And really, this was the, at the core of what we were trying to do. Archaeology, like many disciplines, sort of is built on this idea that we're somehow objective, that we're somehow separate from whatever it is that we're studying, and that to not do that is is a flaw, right? So that we have to have that distance in order to study something. And what we really are articulating is that that's kind of a lie, because we actually can't do that because we're feeling, breathing, connecting humans who live in this world and to think of like we talk a lot about emotion right this idea that we all care about our work we're all interested in what we're doing for reasons that are often emotional right and and even when you get into like fearsome debates around some issue in the discipline why do you think it's so fraught because people have strong emotions about it but we never talk about the role that that emotional response plays in our work and you know i know in in this space that we have we work in the archive and archives are emotional things to work with. And honestly, even being an archaeological site can be really emotional at times. And so for me to like have to separate all those other parts of my experience out of my work just feels like I'm doing my work a disservice because it's actually stronger if I can bring my full self and bring that, those sets of relations into my work. And I was really lucky uh, to have a wonderful teacher in this. And the teacher actually is what we would consider a quote-unquote artifact. I now see it as a relation or a belonging, but it was, uh, we were doing some work in southern Saskatchewan. My graduate student actually was excavating there, and I was uh, in Edmonton, and he came across a beadwork pattern 
So normally we, at Métis sites, we find beads in the thousands because of course, Métis women were beading. <laughs> we know this. Kids were beading. This was happening at, at all these sites. So we find tons and tons of beads. But he found it still in, intact in the pattern and it's a flower bud. And we were able to go down and, you know, do all the conservation things to pull it out of the ground so that we weren't disturbing the pattern and all this sort of thing. But we, I had to do a bunch of the conservation work in a lab with a fume hood because of the chemicals that we were using to solidify the soil and all this, these things. And I started dreaming about the piece and started kind of like, I'd be in the middle of the day, it was sort of like to be tugging at me is the only way I can sort of describe it. It was that it was unhappy. Because it was in a box in a lab in this very sterile environment with nobody around. Uh, and so I, I brought the piece into my office with me and put medicines with it. And now when my Métis relatives, my human Métis relatives come and visit with me, they also visit with our belonging and our relative. And it was actually that belonging that has become a really important teacher about what it means to be a relation. Because mm -hmm. it's my relation. And that means I have certain responsibilities to care for it and to care for them. And that's a very different than like putting it behind a piece of glass in a museum. Is that care? Yeah, it's yeah, like, you're bringing up a go ahead. Oh, I was gonna <laughs> say it's the ethic of care around what we do. And I think the big thing is, is especially within like a Western construct, when we talk about who's our relation, often it's like person to person. We don't think about relations being material items or even mm -hmm. I'm just in the process of getting together a presentation right now that I'm doing in January where I'm making the argument that data is relation. Absolutely. And absolutely data sets, data sets are relation, you know, archival data is relation, health data is relation because it's attached to somebody. It's attached to somebody who is living at one time and therefore it is our relation and we have to be accountable to this data and what we do with this data. And one of the things that I always do, and this has been a practice of mine for a couple of years, is especially when I'm dealing with um, a data set that might be, you know, a little bit more sensitive and, you know, there's a push to make it open. I always think, what mm. would I do if this was my family member or like having to treat it as a relation? You know, mm -hmm. what is the best way that I can act with the most care to this relation and this data set and sometimes people that just like they don't get it at all and I'm this is going to be an international presentation so I'm like this is going to go way over some people's heads and that's totally fine but I think you know it's an important conversation to have because I always say it is a privilege to be the steward or the caretaker of data material items that aren't ours and they don't belong to our family but that have now come into our care through various different means we have to treat it as a family member until it either finds its way back home or it stays in our care forever relationality with more than humans right mm -hmm. I mean I do a lot of work with that stuff too but I'm looking mostly at ghosts and spirits and supernatural elements but I mean if you think about all of this stuff from a spiritual place looking at beadwork a lot of the teachings that I've personally received about beadwork is that you have to be and have to be in a specific mindset and you have to put intentions into the beadwork so if you're in a negative state of mind then you're going to affect this object negatively and if you're giving it gifting it away to somebody then you're then giving them that negativity right so you're imbuing your own spiritual self into said object so it's something to think about yeah and i i appreciate you know again archaeology has not made a lot of space for spirit and i think that does us a disservice as well because if there's any place that's a haunted place, it's 
archaeological sites. <laughs> There's so many of them that carry the the ghosts of the past that have the, those histories of, you know, life and loss and that holds them a lot of spirit. And we do ceremony uh, when we're actually the field school I mentioned from 2000, we did ceremony then where we actually, before we went onto the site itself, we had to wear uh, tamath or ochre paste on spiritually sensitive parts of our body. Didn't matter who you were, you had to wear that to go on the site. And it was a signal to the ancestors who were still there that we were recognizable as human, basically. So like they could actually see us and, and they wouldn't harm us or members of the living community. Um, and so that was one of my first experiences with that. But that never made it into the report. Like that was never part of the analysis. And now, you know, I wrote about about haunting and, and the role of kind of ghosts and some of the, and that I actually, it was the first time I ever put into academic print uh, some of the spiritual experiences that I'd had. And yet so many archeologists I know have stories about encounters of all kinds but they never put them into their academic work. It's just something to tell around the campfire, right? Mm. Um, so I think there's a really important role for spirit if we make the space for it. And that's part of the, the heart-centered work is like this holistic interconnectedness that we can't subtract parts out of as people. Wow, you mentioned ceremony. How do, how do community members interact with you while you're at these different sites? How do they feel about this? We've done, a, I mean, I've worked in many different contexts. And so it depends on, on where I'm, I'm at and what I'm doing. So I'll give you an example of what we do at Métis sites. Now, working on Métis sites is a bit complicated. And the reason it's, comp- well, there's many reasons, but one of the reasons it's complicated is our histories of movement and dispossession. So I've primarily worked on sites from the date from the 1850s to about the 1880s. So what are known as overwintering or Huvernaut sites where during the winter, the, the families that made up these buffalo brigades would actually f- build villages out on the, in the parkland or on the prairie to overwinter near the bison populations, um, especially as they started to dwindle in the second half of the 19th century. And what that means is that these would have been families who now are all over the homeland. <laughs> They're not necessarily local, even though they're connected to the archaeological sites. And one of the things we've been thinking a lot about is that the models for collaboration in archaeology between Indigenous communities and archaeologists have tended to focus on sort of the local, and that really doesn't reflect Métis history or even Métis governance. So if I'm working at a site in in Saskatchewan, then I need to be working with the, you know, Métis Nation Saskatchewan. They may or may not have a local. The people who are comprise that local may or may not be descended from the people who are at that site. Um, so we do what we can to work through the Métis governance structures to make sure that we're connecting people with with all of that. So what we've tended to do is now we do ceremony um, when we're working on site and we do it in in two ways. So we do Cree practices, so we'll smudge uh, and say sort of a prayer and we do a Catholic prayer as well. And this was something that I realized a couple of years ago. I was like, I can't just do a Cree prayer. These folks were, we know they were Catholic because we're finding rosary beads and like medallions and things in the archaeological record. So finding a way to reflect those different sets and ways of understanding to be respectful of that. And then every, but every day we do smudge before we start and we smudge when we end. So not to take any of the sort of spiritual energy with us. Uh, when we leave the site and I get everyone who's on the the dig with me, regardless of who they are, takes that practice. And then when I'm on other people's territory, I respect whatever ceremony they might want to to do because it does vary. 
because uh, I work, I still work in BC and I work with First Nations on, on different projects and things as well. My mom would be very proud of you. Oh, don't, <laughs> don't forget you're Catholic too. <laughs> so I, that's important. I actually had to look up a bunch of Catholic prayers because I didn't know any. Hey, I didn't even know the Lord's hey, Prayer because okay. like. <laughs> not whatever really. he'll forgive it's you stuck in my my brain oh, hail yeah. mary it's just it haunts me. that's my haunting yeah. <laughs> so don't forget you're catholic too even if you're a bad catholic you're still one of us that's really good well, I tried to be respectful of the ancestors, yeah. right? And then many of them, most of them were some variety of Catholic. Yeah. So we'd have to, of course, talk to Paul about what that actually might mean. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you'd say bad Catholics. Yeah. We're all bad Always Catholics. been. Yeah. <laughs> so when it comes to archaeology, this is a question that I also wanted to ask. And I think not just archaeology, but mapping is something that we've kind of had an interest in. And how do you think maps can tell a story of a place okay so (laughs) kayla knows i love maps like maps so methodologically in archaeology my specialty is about mapping and about space and about um, making sense of the land i like the belongings but really i'm happy to have other people look at them i just want to look at the space and sort of how everything is laid out um i think mapping can tell a story in all kinds of ways and i've been using increasingly using a tool called a story map and it's a it's a, it's a program through connected with ArcGIS through Esri, but the principle behind it really is integration of text, of audio, of video, and of maps and different versions of those those maps. And I think maps tell all kinds of stories uh, depending on who makes them, depending on the types of choices that are made in creating them. So one of the things I think a lot about is the uh, dominance of the bird's or god's eye view that we are, you know, for a long time, I certainly was raised with that as the map. I was raised in the time when you had like the giant atlas that you'd lay out on the floor and look through the countries of the world, or you'd have your globe. And then as things became digital, they remained in kind of that cartographic bird's eye view. Although now we're interestingly being able to move away from that and get more into those sort of 3D views, street views, right? We can get into some of those those more complexities. But what you map and how you map really influences the way that people read or make sense of a landscape. You know, names are such a huge part of that, right? Why is Edmonton called Edmonton and not Amiskwichi? And then yet Indigenous names are embedded in the map. Go to Wetaskiwin. That's not a British name. <laughs> so I think things like names and how you name I'm also really interested in the ways that people make use of space and how that reflects their way of understanding their, themselves, their relations, all that kind of thing. So when I go onto an archaeological site, we do a lot of work carefully mapping out the surface and increasingly the subsurface. So I use near surface remote sensing, so ground penetrating radar, other types of sensors that can send signals below the surface of the earth and, and give you a picture of that. And I also have two drones. And so I like to fly my drones over the site with all kinds of fun sensors on them to basically try to get a sense of where people were living on the site itself. And one of the cool outcomes on Métis sites has been that cabins cluster together, which shouldn't really be surprising, but I was looking at the maps and it's pretty clear that you'll have like three or four together and then you'll have a little bit of a gap and then you have three or four together. These are not laid out in like grids or spoken wheel. And as a grid person, I really hate spoken wheel cities. (laughs) 
they drive me. I, I don't know what I'm doing in them. I'm so disoriented. But in in a Métis sites, the clusters, I was, I was looking at them one day and I was like, well, that's got to be families, right? That's like relatives living, you know, building their cabins next to each other. So all of this family and probably the sisters or aunties building their cabins together so that they're close. And you actually see that patterning on archaeological sites, which I think is so cool. But that tells a story about our way of connecting and that we are building these spaces next to other members of our families. Um, so I think maps can be this wonderful and, and powerful way. They're also great ways to communicate back to our community partners um, because we can sort of transport them to that space and tell and narrate the stories when sometimes, you know, they may be in, in Saskatoon and we're, you know, nine hours away and they can't come in and see the site, but we can bring some elements of that back to them. And I'm starting to get really interested in possibilities for things like augmented reality and kind of reconstructing some of the ways we have enough historic photographs of little Métis cabins. I can like populate a landscape with them if I just have a grad student who will do the work work because I don't have the time. But I really love that understanding of, of space. And one other cool thing I've been doing on the historic side is I had a fellowship with Rupert's Land Center for Métis Research a, a few years ago. And I had actually started doing some of this work with Frank Tuff of the Métis Archival Project, who's of course very, you know, map literate and interested. And it's about mapping Métis families on the landscape through the demographic record. And so I did a little pilot project because I've been working with this wonderful collective on the Métis Kinsky project at Laxhanan. And what we wanted, what I wanted to do is see if I could figure out a method to demonstrate where Métis, members of Métis families were through time and space. So this idea that where did people go throughout the course of their lives, where are they recorded? Of course, not where did they go? We only ever have snapshots of that. So we looked at birthplace and marriage place, script, location, where they were living and where they took script. Um, we looked at uh, census data if it was available and reliable, which was kind of sketchy, of course, in the 19th century. And then if we could figure out death records as well. And we map, I mapped 72 people across their whole lives, starting in about eight, I think the earliest is about 1815, all the way up to the early 1900s. And what was so cool about that project is that of the sample of 72, about half of them were only ever recorded in a triangle between Lac St. Anne, St. Albert and Edmonton, and right within that kind of bubble. They were never in the records anywhere else. And that kind of works against this idea of like highly mobile families, because we were, but we're also deeply connected to place, right? And we're deeply connected, and certain families connected to certain places too, right? So if you look, I think if you mapped different family names, you'd find different places where they're most strongly connected. And I think that's a really cool part of our history. And there's been a tendency to sort of say, well, we were everywhere. But that means then were we nowhere? You know, This was a really cool result because it was this groundedness. And in fact, 80% of the sample never left Alberta, which was really interesting to me. And then the other 20% are everywhere across the entire homeland. They're everywhere from like the Northwest Territories to Montana to St. Boniface. Like, so they're kind of, and everywhere in between. So it was really interesting to see that mapping pattern. So mapping our families' histories onto the land as well. I kind of want to go back to something that you said earlier about how we take our emotions into our work mm-hmm. or 
we could create a better space for that. And part of that is also about the self-care that we do because there is like a lot of like heaviness that comes along with like digging up our past, um, particularly Indigenous past. You know, I'm looking at the article, the CBC article about the unmarked residential school graves. Yeah, there's just so much there. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Sure. What that is like taking care of yourself like (laughs) in those stories we're worried about you oh (laughs) yeah I so that that's been an interesting journey for me so I if you'd asked me five years ago if I'd ever work on graves I would have said no and the reason I would have said no is because any time in the past that I've had encounters with ancestral remains with ancestors um, they have not been great and I've had negative physical outcomes <laughs> as well as spiritual ones uh, so I tend to get sick in previous times when I had engaged with ancestors and it was always at the behest of community but even still it was just not a great space for me so when uh, my colleague from the University of Saskatchewan Dr. Terry Clark called and he said hey so I've been working with the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation and the Muscogan First Nation try to find the where the missing children may have been buried he didn't have the equipment or the expertise but he had the connection and so he brought myself and um, my incoming graduate student on board and it was it was you know a privilege and an honor to be asked to do that work and it was so hard it was the hardest work I've ever done and ever probably will do and I probably will do more of it it, it's difficult to describe. I don't know if you've ever visited a residential school site. That itself is hard. And this one was still standing. And a number of the folks, including some of the community members, wanted to go inside. And I just had like a visceral response of like, ah, no, I am not going inside that building. I, I cannot do that, you know. Uh, and even being in the, in the space around it was really hard. And hearing the stories from community about either their experiences or the stories that have been handed down to them about the children who had gone missing was also extremely difficult. I mean, it was much more difficult for them to live it and hear it in their community. Um, but being on that space, I, I think in the article, I said there's a heaviness and it is, it feels just like your whole body weighs twice as much. Um, we did have ceremony in that case. And what was really interesting is that the first day we had had some ceremony with the community and, and that, and the next day we were going to do a bit more work and I brought some smudge, couldn't find my matches. So couldn't light the smudge. And it was just like, oh, what are we going to do? And there was a lot of grace in it because just a few minutes later, some of the community members drove up to check in on us and they had smudge with them and they had the matches and we were able to, to do it. So I feel like we were protected in a certain sense, um, although I also got really sick right after <laughs> which is not unusual for me. But I I feel like in some ways you need to have people who are doing this work who can do it with that level of care, who can understand at some level, like I can't, I didn't live through it, but it, you know, it certainly can be triggering in terms of intergenerational trauma, Um, but someone who can, who can do it with the care and the attention that it needs um, and make as much space as needed for ceremony, for anything that the, the community might want. There's movement from the government to potentially do some work around more schools. And I'm, I'm certain that I will be involved in some capacity. And I feel quite strongly that the ancestors have put me here to do it, that I wouldn't be doing it if they didn't want me to. One other outcome of that work has been that a number of First Nations have approached me and, and my team, particularly my grad student, Liam Wadsworth, who's now doing his PhD with me, which is wonderful. And he's a core part of this work because he's um, really trained in the techniques and he really knows what he's doing. We've been asked to come and do work on historic cemeteries. 
Uh, so a lot of communities have places where their ancestors were buried that may have a fence, may not have a fence, may have markers, may only have some markers, and they don't always know where their ancestors were, were buried in those places. So we've now done a bunch of work with different First Nations in helping them to find the locations of folks inside a cemetery. And that work is challenging, but different. it's not as fraught because while there's grief, these people were buried with love. They were, they were buried with ceremony. They were buried and, and marked and commemorated. So while there is definitely a lot of grief, especially the further back you go, the more children there are. And I'm a mom, you know, I have a five and a half year old. And so when you see that little grave marker with the four-year-old, like that's really tough, but you know that there was at least ceremony there. Whereas at the residential schools, the parents sometimes never knew what even happened to their children. And that is very difficult. So we've been doing some of that work and um, always trying to, again, create space for ceremony, create space for the grief that can come with that. Uh, and then, you know, especially when I have Indigenous colleagues with me talking a lot about how it can trigger inter intergenerational trauma for us. And the archive does that for me too, though. Mm -hmm. right? There are times where I see how people were talking about our relatives in the archive, and it's horrific how, how we were treated. Or, you know, even my own dad's story about growing up in an orphanage, right? He, you know, wasn't a residential school, but he didn't have anyone around to love him, you know? And so a lot of that can, can come up. And if we don't make space for it, it will come out in other ways, right? Because we're feeling it. I'm feeling it when I'm there. I need to be able to go and have a good cry or go. Increasingly, I, I feel the need to, you know, go to elders and, and knowledge holders to, to help figure out what I need in terms of ceremony for that. And I've developed more of my own kind of daily practices. Like here in my office at home, I've got my smudge in case I need it. I've got my sweet grass and my sage because it helps me um, when I'm feeling the weight of all of, of that. Um, what my colleague Jessica Vandenberg at the U of A calls our, our kind of bundle of intergenerational trauma that we carry that can get heavier at times because of the work that we do. Thanks so much for sharing that. I think that's a really important thing, especially for us to reflect, especially when we are dealing with heavier topics um, within our professions, like you said, with archives, with graves, pretty much anything, there can be that heaviness for the whole group or the individual as well can feel it. We all feel our emotions in different ways. So, mm -hmm. but I think reflection is always the best thing. Yeah. And community, like being able to have, to, to have the space to talk about it if you need to, recognizing that all of us who were on doing that work with the residential school had variations on the experience because of who we are, but we could have space. I could check in with my student. I would say, how was that for you? You know, what can we, I, I mean, I, I can't be your counselor, but I can at least make the space to say that was difficult and that we can, we can care for each other in that as well. Yeah, you're so right. I've had an elder tell me recently that relationships can cause trauma, but they're what help us get out of it too, right? Yeah. So community and community support is so important to this kind of work. Any type of work when you're delving deeper into yourself or into your past, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's hard in the time of COVID to stay connected. Because as much as, you know, it's wonderful, I have some connections with, with elders who I get to see over in different spaces over Zoom and or doing a phone call. But there's something also of being together that is in person that is sometimes hard to replicate in that. And I look forward to a time when we can do that safely again, because that um, it's also put a real damper on doing any archaeological work because so much of it is field-based and so much of it is you can't really do it alone. 
it's not the kind of work you can do by yourself. It's, it's always in a team and therefore it's risky because that team is not necessarily in your, in your bubble or in your household. So we, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to come to a time where we can do that connecting and that supporting in person. But in the meantime, we do what we can. We're getting close to the end of our time. We always like to ask uh, questions like, what advice do you have for young archaeologists? The young, <laughs> the Kayla before the fourth year. Yeah. What would you say? Young or old. Young or old. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever. <laughs> what would you say to that person? I would say to the young aspiring archaeologist or someone who's interested in that, um, know that you can bring whoever you are to that. Know that all of yourself can be in the space that is archaeology, that you don't have to to change who you are to to be an archaeologist. Uh, And that it's okay to be interested in your own past, but it's also totally okay to be really interested in somebody else's, right? And I think one of the things that tends to happen with, especially folks who are Indigenous or folks who who are, say, Black, they tend to get sort of, you must study X, if you're Indigenous, you must study Indigenous peoples. It's like, hey, if you want to go out and work with the Egyptians as they dig up the pyramids, cool, go do that too. So there's lots of possibilities in exploring the past. Um, also, I would say archaeology is a way to tell stories. It doesn't have to just be this sort of dry scientific way of analyzing the past. It can be a way to richly tell stories about people's daily lives in the past. It can help to connect the past and the present and the future. We talk about seven generations in the past and seven generations into the future. And I think a lot about that in my work because I'm bringing that history into the now, but then I'm also gifting it to the generations that come after. And I think archaeology has a wonderful power to fill in some of the silences of history. So where are the stories not being told? Archaeology can help to tell those stories when it's done in a good way, when it's done in a respectful, relational way. It can really tell those stories and fill those silences of the past. So go and do it and bring all yourself to it and come talk to me (laughs) because I love to mentor and talk to, especially if you're an Indigenous person listening and really interested in archaeology, come seek me out. I really love to talk. I love to teach. I love to create the spaces for people to just flourish. And I just have such a wonderful privilege to do that. Awesome. Keisha, is there a way that we can promote you connecting with other people, social media or an email address that we can share in our show notes or you sure can the podcast? Um, so you can, for email, you can find me at keisha.supernant at ualberta.ca. We can put that in the show notes. For social media, I am very active on Twitter. And my Twitter is very much my sort of professional social media account. And that I tend to engage with Indigenous issues and archaeological issues. I'm a real champion of kind of equity and diversity, trying to make sure we're making space not just for Indigenous folks, but for all sorts of diverse folks. Um, so you'll, if you follow me on Twitter, I'm at, at Archaeomapper. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-M-A-P-P-E-R. And uh, you can follow me there. You can also check out our institute. So the Institute of Prairie and Indigenous Archaeology. Just Google search that and you'll find our webpage. That's a wonderful way if community members are listening and they're interested in maybe connecting with us in our research. You can learn more about the different projects we're involved in on the website. And you can get in contact with me directly through that website as well. And also it features all of my awesome students. And so you can go and learn about all the cool work that they're doing too. 
That's so amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today, Keisha. It was so great to talk to you and hang out for the last hour. And for all of our listeners, thank you for being here for another episode of The Book Women. We are almost done the season, but we have a few more episodes left. So keep on listening. Hi, hi, and thank you for being here.